Woo-hoo. Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. And we're doing some high quality happy dancing over here on this Tuesday. Happy dancing? What are you talking about? Oh, it's dancing with a lot of enthusiasm and probably very low quality dance moves. Okay, well, I haven't danced at all. So I'm asking you, have you been dancing when I haven't been looking? Oh, yeah. I've been twerking around every corner. Before this podcast, I like warmed up. And <laughs> did a little jig that I'm doing right now with my arms. I feel good. And it's because I have endorphin swag again. Yeah, this is so cool. I mean, tell the listeners what happened, where you're at right now. I got to exercise on Saturday and it was glorious bliss. And exercise is maybe like a stretch of the definition because it was, my heart rate had to be in the 120. So like very low Z1 for me. And I was down there on the elliptical moving so slowly, but generating so much dopamine and it was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. That feeling when you have an exercise and then you get to is so incredible. Oh my gosh. It's the wildest life high. It's like, it's actually like hard to describe even. And I think I'm especially prone to it. Yeah. And I mean, the gratitude you feel for it coming back. It's such a great reminder. Like for me, it was so motivating this weekend to see, okay, she's that happy doing that little bit of a happy dance on the elliptical. I better be able to find gratitude getting out there on the trails and things like that. Well, it's a little easier. So last week I actually, after recording the podcast, I had like so much hope and optimism. And then I feel like that like linearly declined as the week (laughs) went on. And I kind of entered like sad girl status, maybe because I was on so much prednisone. And for me, prednisone is kind of like, actually we listened to a comedian, best-selling, amazing comedy special on Netflix. And she described for her being on a form of OCP called Yaz felt like pharmacological warfare. And I feel like for me, that's what prednisone, like high doses of prednisone feel like. And so entering into Saturday, when I got these endorphins, I felt like I was becoming slightly sadder and sadder and Saturday. And then it was like a big life bump. (laughs) (laughs) It went from Saturday to Saturday again. Yes. Um, Very fast. Yeah. So I actually think a step back is important here. So you had heart issues that required you to be on prednisone. A lot of people messaged after the podcast to say how inspired they were by your optimism and hope and all of that. And I think we convey the full range of emotions on here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that was the peak of my hope and optimism. (laughs) The podcast was the peak. You know what? We came cratering downhill. (laughs) Uh, I had kind of like a sad week, which is very rare for me. And I think a lot of it was medication induced. Like 20 to 40 milligrams of prednisone in like my cells want yeah. to like spontaneously combust from inside five to 10 milligrams. And I kind of feel like superwoman, but in, I don't know, it was, it was rough. So, but it made Saturday that much more special because I felt yeah. like it was like getting this dopamine reset and feeling good and having that hope and optimism again, but definitely a roller coaster. Were there any highlights to the sad girl track club week that really emphasize and uh, illustrate for our listeners just how sad it got? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I'm actually, th- this is the wild thing. Pick a moment, any moment. <laughs> I don't even know which one it is. You're ref- it seems like you're referring to a specific moment that I should know about. Yeah. So you you had a call. Do you remember this call? Oh, yeah. I did have like a therapy call and I just cried and cried and cried, which I almost, I mean, I don't do that very often. Yeah. But then it was cathartic and I felt great. Yeah. So that things got so much better after that. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was bringing it up. Yes, yes. Because you, you left. And we had had a good morning. We had, you know, made things better. We had been living our lives fully, but you left on this therapy call. You come back and all of a sudden there's just a lightness about you. And I asked, what happened? You're like, basically, I just cried in her face for 60 minutes. <laughs> Which I've almost never done. Yeah. And I felt so good. Honestly, it almost felt as good as the 60-minute joy riding elliptical on Saturday oh. morning. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, it was felt as good as sex. I thought you were going to say that. Well, can I, can I say, we like, okay. So this is this was our Thursday. And I feel like it's this... 
I sometimes I feel like people have this like viewpoint of how we live our lives. So yeah. Thursday I woke up, I was a little bit sad and we rallied at like 11 and you're like, let me make you less sad. <laughs> Why don't we snuggle? So we snuggled and we did our things. Then at noon I had this therapy call yeah. and like cried my eyes out. So I went from like <laughs> sad to banging to very sad to happy again. And it was like quite a whirlwind. Emotions are nonlinear, Megan. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've learned in this process of life is that, you know, in the, in the past I'd say, Hey, if you say you snuggle, and then there's like a, an hour of extreme crying, that might be uh, some bad feedback. That might be a negative <laughs> yeah. Yelp review. Yeah. Um, but I've learned that, you know, it's just emotions go in waves. And sometimes you got to ride the waves. They go in waves. And you know what? When you are busy and you don't have childcare all the time, sometimes you got to like ride those waves yeah. like they're hot and get in things when you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason you were able to get back to exercise is you got some blood work numbers that came back shockingly good. My inflammatory markers look so much better. So, and my heart feels good too. So yeah. I like rapidly responded to this prednisone that makes my cells want to eat themselves, yeah. which is good. So it's working. And no, I mean, I, I'm really, really excited about that. So I'm just so proud of you. And obviously the rest of the journey is going to be really nonlinear. And I think one of the things that we had to cry about together on Thursday morning, this was at 5 a.m. on Thursday, 4.30 a.m. on Thursday morning. Oh, we start crying early. What a fucking day we had. <laughs> I know. Um, we were, what we were crying about was the extent of future issues that we are just going to have to expect um, here with autoimmune condition you have. And, um, you know, I think it's good because we essentially came together into this understanding that like there's going to be a lot of really, really, really tough times. A lot of uncertainty, I think for me. And I think for me as someone that loves, I love certainty and I'm not going to be granted that. And I think what I, what we came back to at the end of that is like, I feel like at this point I'm like learning to trust myself that like, I'll be okay. Like I'll wade through this. Maybe I'll have a Thursday where I I cry for a little bit. Uh, but I feel like the more that I do it, the more that I'm like, Oh, I trust in myself that I can get through this uncertainty. And then it helps a lot. And we need to process it as a team too. Like, you know, when this first started, I cried in a field for 30 minutes. Um, and I think I really accelerated through it, but also I didn't have to live the physical nature of the pain you were experiencing. So you almost like put that off just to get through day to day. Um, and then, you know, so we had a good, uh, mutual cry session that essentially there was just a lot of fluids on Thursday, Megan. So many fluids, (laughs) but you know what? I feel great now. Yeah. It was like a a pharmacological release of fluids. Yeah. Yes. And as what has the sweat been. So moving along to combat the pharmacological warfare of prednisone. Yes. Very important points. (laughs) Okay. So we're bringing the best energy for you today. So many endorphins. We're just so pumped to talk to you all. Uh, quick roadmap here. We're going to talk about Z1 training and how Megan's coming back. Some lessons you can have about mitochondria and aerobic development, a sports story about celebration. One of my favorite things going on in baseball right now. Uh, a new study on hemoglobin and fitness that is truly bonkers. Uh, some endurance news quick hitters. I think four or six maybe even stories uh, that you need to know about. Uh, uh, talking about your watch training status. So what the, what your watch is telling you, what you can learn from that. The Red S consensus statement that just came out. And finally, hot takes. I'm so excited. And the hemoglobin stuff, I'm pumped to talk about. Yeah. And you actually wrote an article. You wrote a Toronto article this weekend that's coming out uh, on Tuesday, yeah. which it's, it's Monday now. And I'm so excited for that. I actually, I took Leo all day because I was like, I want to read the brilliance that comes from David Roach <laughs> writing. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't written in a really long time. How I've, was it? I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Was when it the, like cathartic? 
Was it like a release of fluids? (laughs) (laughs) No, actually. But what was interesting is that my body temperature just goes sky high when I write. It might be one of the more activating things I ever do. I know. And it's very activating for me because I come over and I I love warmth. And I come over and I hug you and you're like the warmest snuggie ever. (laughs) This is not snuggle time. This is writing time. (laughs) This is neuron time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it was really fun. It's a 3,000 word article on the science of hemoglobin and some of the wild studies that have come out recently. Motivated by the one we're going to be talking about today um, and some of the conversations we've had on the podcast. And I think there were some good jokes in there. What do you think? Oh, there's some great jokes and good science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's actually tons of science. So we're going to dive into this in a minute. But I was I was selfishly very excited because it's like the best summary of the science. And I wanted you to teach me. Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, quick thing on our lives. Um, our gear is out now. Be aware that, that we'll have a full release of it for people on Patreon. So patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. We ordered extras in every size. Um, we're going to have a good order, but they are a limited quantity. So that's for people on Patreon. But just to give you a hint of how wonderful this gear is, I was running it um, in that gear today on or on Saturday. And I was feeling really good. I was rocking. There was a group of four women out there who were absolutely slaying the mountain. And as I run by... I just yell huzzah, and they gave me the biggest hoots and hollers, <laughs> and I was so pumped. I was like, oh, this is so cool, because the gear on the back just says, in really subtle lettering, huzzah, and it made me really happy about this gear design. And then, four hours later, when I got home, Megan pointed out that there was a massive hole in the ass of my shorts. It was huge. It looked like a small dinosaur or something yeah. attacked you. Fortunately, like, okay, your butt really wasn't showing, but it was. there was a lot of skin. I don't know. That was the day of the lunar eclipse uh, That's true, that happened. Yeah. They were seeing some eclipses out there. That's <laughs> oh, all I'm saying. Oh, yeah. It was a really good eclipse. But it's kind of on brand. I mean, I feel like if you have huzzah written across the back of your shirt, you might as well have like shorts that look like a dinosaur eat them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th- that comes from Addie having eaten treats out of my shorts in the past. And I've never retired them, even though they're about eight years old. Oh, you've done like probably 45 long runs in these shorts that show a lot of ass. <laughs> we should sell them with the, the gear. Yeah, the the ass shorts. Yes, yeah. I mean, one. I mean, I feel like you might as well make like the whole epi- like outfit complete. Yeah. Put a crop top and some dinosaur eating shorts in there and see what happens. Well, there's a lot of shorts and pants that have flies in the front. What about in the back? <laughs> yeah. We should have had a hole there all along. That makes the most sense for runners, I think. For your glutes. Our, for our glutes, but also some of the GI issues yes. that runners <laughs> are known to have. Um, Number two about our lives that is kind of important is on Saturday, after all of this, we went to Leo's first corn maze. We did the whole experience of autumn here in Boulder. It was a great, great chance to really embrace the season. It was so much fun. Also, there was a lot to be desired at this corn maze because we've gone to corn mazes in like Pennsylvania and North Carolina, and they're miles long. They have like art and design carved into the corn. And this one was about 50 feet. (laughs) We tried to set a corn maze FKT and time ourselves. You made a wrong turn. I did make a wrong you, turn. You rallied from the wrong turn. On a corn turn. maze designed for two-year-olds. Yes. And we made it through in 32 seconds. And I posted it on Shava. Yes. And we didn't even, we were like race walkers. We didn't even have any knee drive. Yeah. So I think we're setting records out there. It's pretty exciting. But what we, the main reason we're talking about this is what we did afterwards, which is we went to Chick-fil-A and we had the best order of all time. So we talk a lot on here about the importance of food and fueling. And we're going to talk about that a lot more re- later and some of the science there. Um, but we want to emphasize just what we mean. So our order at Chick-fil-A, is it okay if I list <laughs> can, this off, Megan? You can go through this, yes. Okay, so this was us two and a baby, and I assume that the cashier thought we had like a whole party of eight, um, but it was two by 12 chicken nuggets, 
two by four chicken tenders, a milkshake, and waffle fries. And it was so delicious. Actually, this is the best reason to have a baby is because you classify as a small family. Yeah, this Leo is had about three and a half of the waffle fries, but we were still a small family with that order. Yeah, it was a convenient <laughs> excuse because like, I think sometimes people don't understand the importance of energy availability, even at Chick-fil-A. Oh, that yeah. cashier didn't fully get that we're just following the science here. Um, but I, you know, we actually posted a picture of it and got a lot of responses because I think sometimes people don't fully conceptualize the importance of these types of things when you're training hard, when you're building your body back, when you're going through health issues, the body needs this substrate to build itself up. So yes, you don't want to do that every night perhaps, but for us, it was the most fun experience after the corn maze. And we've been kind of doing it like once a week. Yeah. We've been like progressing our Chick-fil-A visits quite a bit. It's actually, it's like 25 minutes away, which is kind of a nice distance away from us. Like yeah. it has to be an event, but we don't just like walk there on a Tuesday night. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first step to, in having a problem is admitting you have a problem. Um, okay. And then your heart's looking up and we want to use this as a brief discussion about zone one training and lower level training. So how would you describe your training on the way back? You said 120s heart rate. What are the guidelines you're using as you return from pericarditis? Well, extreme zone one. And I should be careful because my like heart rate is all public. So I'm going to be like 120s, 130s. And then yeah. when I go out and run a little later and it's in the 140s, people are going to be like, yo girl, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, so generally like 120s, 130s. 30s, thinking about really like easy zone one for me in a five zone model. Yeah. Um, and so we'll actually, we'll talk about some differences between like the three zone model and the five zone model. But for me, that's like really lighting my mitochondria and fire, being careful with my heart. But it's actually something I haven't really done before. Yeah. And so I'm excited because it's fun. It's not, like nothing hurts about yeah. this. And I kind of miss it. Like I do miss like running in the pain cave, but getting out the door when nothing hurts is so easy. Yeah. And I think that endurance athletes really need to understand this. Sometimes the mix of like what easy training entails and just how easy it should be is missed at times because athletes think, all right, you know, I can run in zone two and be totally fine with that. But the importance that we see in a ton of data is that you need to elongate the aerobic curve. Mm -hmm. If you're not spending a good bit of time at the very low end, even if you're training mostly easy, so you're under aerobic threshold, you're just going a little bit more moderate you're going to see issues once you start to hit aerobic threshold and then above too. That everything rests, not just on the foundation of easy, but on also on the fat, like what's below the foundation. And are the, you, what are you using for a, a model in that case? Is that the three zone model or the five zone model? As you I'm talk talking about, about five zone model. Yes, perfect. So, yep. <laughs> okay, that's a good step back. Five zone model, zones, zone one is very easy. That's mm -hmm. where Megan's spending her time um, after pericarditis due to the recommendations from the American Car College of Cardiology and her cardiologists. Um, zone two is kind of the easy to easy moderate zone. It's still easy. That's all zone one in a three zone model. Um, and then above that, we're starting to get more intense. But I think right now what we're just talking about are those really low end levels. And I think sometimes athletes just, whether it's ego or something else, they're just scared to spend time in 120 to 130 heart rate type zone for a person with a normal type of heart. And so much good happens there. And what we see is that if you spend the time there, the improvements, particularly for lipid oxidation, then distribute up. So what you'll find is that you're able to push substantially harder, even when you're doing like more moderate type runs, um, all because you're going out there and joyriding, feeling no pain as you described it. And I think it's not even just lipid oxidation. Like that's like the very, very start of where this goes. You also look at like type one muscle fibers. There's tons of capillarization of the type one muscle fibers, which is really exciting. You're building those slow twitch muscle fibers. And that's what you really need as an endurance athlete, plus tons of like increased cardiac output over time. And yeah. for me, as I think about my heart, my like brain starts to give that mind blown emoji, thinking about all these different things coming together. So it's kind of fun to think about it. But you talked about ego there, like yeah. athletes 
aren't necessarily doing zone one because of ego. I feel like for me so often, it's just like inertia. Like I get out there and it's like, for whatever reason, I just like start moving and grooving and feeling the music and things like progressively bump up. And it takes so much patience for me to stay in the zone one, even though it's like more fun getting out the door, knowing it's not going to hurt. And I think it's really interesting to think about like what happens with athletes in inertia over time. And athletes just have to get out there and be really content kind of just bouncing around. Oh yeah. Like, you can't get bored. Like, Especially with heart rate drift. Like yeah. at first you're like, oh, this feels fast. And then all of a sudden like 20 minutes in heart rate drift hits and you're like, shoot. Yeah. Like I really need to check myself before I wreck myself on this hill. Yeah. And the best study on this came out in 2023. We talked about it uh, on a past episode, but want to highlight it one more time. It's called does lactate guided threshold interval training within a high volume, low intensity approach represent the next step in the evolution of distance running training? Um, Google that if you can, because there is a figure in there, um, figure three, which is absolutely game-changing, and it goes through just how much of intense training and race performances rest on this very low-end um, fitness development, primarily through how mitochondria develops and the type 1 muscle fibers that Megan talked about. And so just basing that all of this comes from a place of how your body is working on the cellular level, not just like protecting yourself from injury, but also adapting long-term becomes huge. And I even see it with like top-end professional athletes like you, or um, there's an athlete I'm talking to right now that's experiencing a slight lull in his <laughs> training. And I go through into his file and like he's spending so much time in zone two in a five-zone model. And over time, that breaks you down too. Like half of your training, at least when you're running easy, should probably be in pure zone one, which is very, very easy for most people. And I love, we've talked about this a lot before that it's really an art too. Like yeah. I feel like sometimes there's these like hard and fast concrete rules, but when you break it down for each athlete, it's so different. And I think a lot of it too is, is like, talking to a coach, going back through your data, like really understanding where you fall on this distribution. But I see so often like the lost art is zone one. Yes. The lost art is zone one. Yes. Yeah. That might have to be in the title. Today, right? <laughs> yeah. You oh. just nailed the title. High five. High five. <laughs> yes. Okay. Next up, um, this is getting to a sports story, but first one to talk about Leo celebrating himself, our little baby. Um, there's a video that we're going to share on Patreon. You might've seen it on Instagram this week too. Um, that is him doing this uh, basketball move where he just goes, runs up, and then throws a ball into Addy's water water bowl. And he just looks up after he realizes it went, went in and starts screaming with joy. Like squealing and shaking. Like it's like a full body contortion. It's amazing. And it brings up a question that came from a Patreon listener. My question is, what are three simple things um, we can all make the conscious decision to do slash implement every day to instill that belief in ourselves, not just in running, but more general life too, I guess. And sorry if three is limiting, but I guess we all need to start somewhere. Well, I feel like as we brainstorm, we'll start with three and then it'll become like eight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the first one for thinking about this stuff is that inspiration follows perspiration. That yeah. old quote is so true. Like if I waited for being motivated to run, especially in low points when I'm a little bit more tired in life or going through things, I would almost never go through this process. And I think a lot of times people see Instagram or Strava and just assume that everyone's pumped all the time. And that's not the case. Like I seem like by the end of the runs, usually I'm in that place, but sometimes not even then. Like you kind of just have to get moving and eventually it just becomes a part of character. 
Yeah. And I think you have to be patient through the perspiration too. Like, I feel like for me, sometimes I feel like I'm waiting so long for things to come or like with the health stuff that I've experienced, it's like I do a training cycle and then it stops abruptly. And then I have to like hop back into another training cycle with very limited fitness. And I feel like for me, it's like patience in the process, patience in the hustle in just like recommitting to that process, knowing and like having some sort of certainty in myself and like how I handle these things that it will work out even in times of uncertainty. Yeah, definitely. And just giving yourself a chance in that context. Like, like this listener asking about, you know, belief or whatever. It's like belief. Yes. Maybe you can decide that that's a narrative goal for you that you attack over years, but day to day, what belief looks like is just trying. Oh, it looks very unsexy day to day. Yes. Yeah. But that is the sexy nature of it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The sexy nature is just showing up. Yeah. So like relationships in that way that like, you know, maybe at first in relationships, it's just like, you know, sparks flying, fireworks, all that stuff, even though that I think is a little bit overstated too. Later on in relationships, it's like, you know, laundry and taxes. As or ha- it's like banging at 11 and crying at noon. <laughs> <That> <laughs> or, was actually, laundry, or laundry and taxes. That was a pretty sexy day. That was a pretty sexy day. I, I, that, that, that isn't even, that is most certainly not the normal day. I, more like, you know, it's you staring at me as I open the podcast software today. And there's a camera here that flashes on. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm ugly and old. No, you looked at your face and you're like, I have so many wrinkles. But literally what you were looking at was your smile dimples. It's like, they're dimples, not wrinkles, which is like, are going to be our new catchphrase. Right? I like it. Yes. It's yeah. a good reframing. But similarly, like what a relationship becomes, I think mostly is showing up not just for the fireworks and all that, but showing up for the, you know, the day-to-day grind, like the monotony that is necessary in anything that is like long-term investment. But I think for me, it gets back to like, how do you talk to yourself in that grind? So like, what's your background, like noise in your brain? Number two. Number two. Oh, look at that. You're tagging it. I am. Like for me, I feel like early on in my life, my self-chatter was very like judgmental and like filled with pressure. And I've had to like actively work at this. And it's been something at first they had just kind of like fake it until I make it. But like, thinking about and tuning into that self chatter and trying to like, like drive that with a little bit stronger, more positive, more patient inertia over time. What do you think your chatter was like before? Like if you had to characterize it, is there any types of things you'd say to yourself? Yeah. Like all caps intense. Intense? Yeah. yeah, It was like having Michael Jordan in your brain being like, girl, drive to the basket at all times. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is my ball. I'm taking it and I'm going to shoot. I'm going to dunk on that dog ball. (laughs) Interesting. So Um, How about with you? Well, I mean, I first want to hear about your trajectory there. So how do you go from that type of intensity, which I guess was negative in some ways? Why was it negative first? Oh, I feel like I put so much pressure on myself. And I think that type of intensity, if you don't have, like, I feel like it doesn't leave a lot of of room for like creativity or uncertainty or failure. And I started just like, you know, naturally like failing and failing and failing. And I recognized <laughs> that like, I wasn't going to keep going if I was yeah. just like driving to the basket all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Dikembe Mutembo was there just to reject your shot. Again, over and, over and again, and, over. and again, and your heart and your shot and yeah, your yeah. heart. Yeah. And so that just kind of diminished the intensity element of it. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I also realized it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't a place. I mean, honestly, I didn't love it. Yeah. And I wanted like self chatter in my brain that I loved, you know? Yeah. So what do you got now? It's much, it's much kinder. Yeah. It's patient. It's kind. It's like, you're good. You're yeah, good? You're yeah. good? Maybe pass the ball. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> shoot a three every once in a while. Like, hang out. Have yeah. some, like, oranges at half court. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your orange slices are key to this process. Oh, yeah. Very key to the self-chatter. But the intensity, I think, would still there. 
And that's one thing it's important. Yes, yeah. Oh, but, but it's there, but it's not there all the time. And it's not controlling you. No, and I think it's there in a loving way too. And I, and I recognize it. Like before I felt like it was there and I didn't even know why. Yeah. And now it's like, it's there. I recognize it. I turn it on very specifically. Um, and then I let it go. I love that. Yeah. yeah how, about, and, how about with you? So I always had feelings of inadequacy yeah. um, rather than intensity where, you know, like we talked about last week with body image issues, let's say, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, even while running, I remember going past the car windows. You know how like you're going past the side of the car? Oh yeah. I always yourself? stand up and I'm like, knee drive, beautiful <laughs> form. And it's the four seconds in a run I look good. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would look sideways and think dumb fat bitch, you know? Yeah. Um, and I've stopped doing that. I, you know, I think a lot of that comes from your validation. And have you stopped of- looking into the mirror or have you stopped thinking that or both? I mean, sometimes I look in there and I'm like, sexy bitch. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it's just uh, understanding that like this shit that I was holding on to um, was almost its own type of defense mechanism. Like hmm. I found some joy in scratching that cut of not liking everything about myself, you know? Yeah. And for me, my radical act of courage was deciding, you know what? I do love myself. And even when I didn't kind of faking it till I make it, made it, like you said, and you know, the hardest part is when other people don't validate that. So like yes, yeah. you validate me being a sexy bitch all the time. Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, there's people out there that haven't in the past, like, and by that, I mean, you know, like people that just talk shit, you know, yeah. like haters and stuff like that or whatever you want to call it. And the hardest part has been holding on to it in those moments. And I think I'm getting better all the time. I think being a parent has helped with that because it just kind of brings me back home to the present. Um, but all in all, I mean, the inadequacy feelings are still there. And the the reason that being aware of this chatter is the most important thing is not because you can change it overnight, but because by understanding you do want to have some like, control over the direction you go and yes, setting yeah. those intentions. Yeah. That's when like, you know, not, maybe not self-love. And when we say self-love, essentially, I think what we mean is like being okay with not loving yourself sometimes. I love that. Also too, because I feel like sometimes when there are moments of failure or uncertainty, it's like that chatter that is innately challenging to your brain comes like raging back in a tidal wave. Like I know for me, like when sometimes like, and I've been better at working on this, but like if in times, in times when things are tough, it's like that drive that like the the bonkers drive that I have yeah. just comes raging back and I have to like forcefully push back against it. Are there any examples of that that off the top of your head? Oh yeah. Like when my heart happened, I'm like, I must go Z5 yeah. and just go out there and do a Megan run and run as hard as I can. Obviously I didn't do that, Yeah, but it's like, I also have the like self chatter to like push back against that too. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, similarly, like when I DNF grindstone for my ankle, like the way that the narrative wanted to switch in my head to, Oh, you were going to fucking suck at that race anyway. So good thing it happened. Um, you know, it wanted to become that. And it, just to point out that even as we say this, like this is a constant process. Um, and that brings to number three that I think is the the key moment uh, that brings us back to Leo celebrating himself too. It's a culture of celebration of others and of yourself. In your brain. Yes. In your brain and yeah. out loud and yeah. everything. Yep. Like celebrating so freaking hard, like Leo in this video that we're going to share, that he just screams that to the point that everyone that saw it was like, that's the most happy situation I've ever seen. And not to say he, I mean, obviously he's going to have existential angst and hate our guts in the future like everyone does and, you know, be talking to his therapist about us and stuff like that. But like one thing we have done is literally everything he does gets celebrated to an excessive level to the point that he's clearly internalized that a little bit. That's what we try to do for athletes. And most of all, it's what we try to do for ourselves. And I think that that's essential because everyone is going to hit those failure moments that you talk about and shit's going to hit the fan. If that it leads to you just like 
getting rid and just tossing the celebration aside that you have this conditional self-acceptance, you're just going to get fucked when things go wrong, which is kind of like a perpetual problem that we're all going to face. Well, I feel like for me, music helps a lot in this. Uh, yeah. Actually, it helps a lot in like all three of these because I feel like it occupies a space in my brain that like makes me want to dance uh. and it helps myself chatter. It helps my like how I talk to myself. It helps the culture of like celebration inside me. So I feel like put on some funky music. You know what I'm reminded of there? What? My mind's telling me no, but my body, my body's telling, telling me, me yes. yes. <laughs> and that's kind of where we get back to. So let's put all this together in a story that I can't wait to tell people because I told Megan this week and she, you almost like cried tears of joy. I so did good. cry tears of joy. Yeah. Actually, yeah. All kinds of body fluids. Okay. So Trey Turner, um, shortstop for the Philadelphia Phillies, um, absolutely amazing player, but he signed a $300 million contract in the offseason. And I think for him, that must have brought a fair amount of pressure because for the first time in his career, he absolutely sucked at the start of the year, all the way through August 6th, which is uh, four months into the season. So two-thirds of the way into the season, he was hitting 237 and was below replacement level. So like you could just take someone off the street of the lower levels of their minor league system and replace this guy being paid by paid $300 million. That's insane. And it wasn't even just as hitting. So we were watching a video of his errors, which was actually like very painful to watch. I almost <laughs> had you turn it off because like every part of me wanted to squeal inside with, oh, this is uncomfortable. Yeah. But so many uncomfortable fielding errors that had to be like radically embarrassing for yeah. him too. And on top of the hitting, but what I love what happened that came next. So I, I just absolutely love this. So a fan, it seems like a fan started this. Yeah. They decided they rallied together the Philadelphia fans. And I'm from Philadelphia. So when Philadelphia decides to do something, they like go all in on doing it, whether it's for better or for worse. But the problem here, and, and the part that makes this story truly bonkers to me, is that it happened in Philadelphia. Yes, that's true. Yes. The place most notorious for treating their athletes like shit. The place of brotherly love, where they actually just get brotherly shit like, yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, they literally booed Santa Claus back in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I believe it. Famously. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when we go to Philadelphia to run, we like say huzzah and woohoo and like run with our, our ass shorts and do all kinds of things. And like literally no one responds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ass shorts. I haven't run with those yet. Maybe that's the missing link here. Oh, yeah. Actually, I feel like Philadelphia would be about ass shorts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, so what they decided to do was they decided to give a standing ovation to him every time he came up to plate. And they just went wild and crazy. Just one game in early August where they, they started screaming. And I, I read a story, actually, that came from um, Lauren Thiessen at Defector. And it linked to some other stories that involved people that were at that game. And they were all skeptical. I mean, these are Philly fans. They're like, why are we cheering somebody on here? doesn't really make sense. But it caught on. And they started giving him standing ovations every single time he came to the plate. And, you know, this guy is a professional. He's been in the majors for a really long time. He's making $300 million. This shouldn't affect him, right? Yeah, clearly he's like mentally optimized. Yeah. yeah. Or that's think. what you would think. Yes, exactly. So to finish the story, he went from hitting 237 to start the season. After that, he's hit 355 with 18 home runs in less than two months. He had a game-winning home run to send them to the uh, National League Championship Series. So the Phillies are absolutely crushing it right now. Basically, he went from below replacement level to most valuable player in the league level all after the standing ovation. It, you know, correlation is not causation, but it's too wild not to indicate something. And like, it's just a reminder, you know, if we're the ones that are cutting ourselves down, there needs to be a standing ovation in our lives. Oh yeah. And, and, and it's hard to get, like, where's it going to come from? Whether that's a coach, whether that's a partner, whether that's friends, you need to like make that culture. Or whether that's you. You now, can be your own standing ovation too. And I feel like it doesn't necessarily always have to start from someone else or your dog. Yeah. Addie is like our standing ovation that dives into our bed every morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this is a quote from that Defector article by Lauren Thiessen. The last three, four weeks have been a lot better, Turner said. Normal me, I guess. 
That's the right way to look at it. Even after what have must felt like an endless stretch of struggle, Turner hasn't allowed his failures to redefine who he is as a ball player. To him, this month isn't a hot streak, but the way his Phillies tenure should have been all along. There's always the looming threat that his numbers will crash again. But looking at the full scope of Turner's career, it's the slump that's the outlier, not the good stuff. He always, even in his lowest moments, had world-class baseball skills within him. Maybe he just needed a push in the right direction. My favorite part of that quote is normal me, I guess. Yeah. That, you know, normal me is his like excellence. And yeah. I think it's I think it's really cool that he's acknowledging that. Yeah. And then, yeah. that's why when in coaching, we'll often say, we're just a tailwind mm-hmm. in people's yeah. journey. Or, another, or a standing ovation. Yeah, exactly. And another quote I always like to do is something like, you know, you have everything you, you need for this goal inside of you already. And we're not trying to create something new. We're just trying to like hone it. Um, and I think sometimes people push back against that so much. And I know I do. Like, gosh, I mean, thinking back you know, earlier in my journey and even now, so much of that talk just comes to like, you know, you're not enough until you achieve this. Like, you have to keep striving. You have to keep doing this. I mean, even with a podcast, let's say, like, you know, there was a moment earlier in this episode where I was just like, oh, I haven't been that interesting yet. Wait, what? Yeah, I thought that. No, you've been hilarious. But I, I mean, I'm sure you feel that sometimes when we're recording, right? Oh, no, you're like the driving pulse. No, sometimes actually I do. But actually you told me something a couple months ago that really resonated with me and oh. helped a lot is that just show up and be whatever you are. Okay. Like, yeah. you know, I think you're always interesting. You have to accept that. But it's okay if it's like silly or sad or like loving or whatever it is. And each week it's a different energy. I was nervous when you were quoting me from a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You said this amazing thing. Snitches get stitches. (laughs) What? Um, Yeah. No, I mean, but see, that's creeping in all the time still. Like, and it's just wild to think about that. And and so in other words, this is ever present. This is going to happen to Trey Turner again. Wherever you're at, this is going to happen to you again. And to answer the listener's question, it's about accepting that and accepting that that part of you deserves the biggest hug and celebration of all. Like celebrate the times when you also are being self-critical, if that's your downfall or whatever it is. Um, because that part of you is going to be the same part that becomes the part that loves yourself. Um, but it's always going to have those, you know, tinges of the past. And so you're not trying to like, you know, become someone different. You're trying to just evolve what you already are. I love that. As you're like talking about this, my mind is like drawing a map of arrows in all the different directions in which people evolve. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of wild to think about like how those come together, like whether that map intersects with like a coach, a therapist, a friend, a loved one, and how they like, like entangled together. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and that, I like the evolution metaphor there Yeah, in that, you know, what drives evolution in, in a lot of the theories for, you know, evolution, as I understand them initially involved, okay, these are gradual processes that happen over time. Um, and that was pushing back against prior theories that it's like sudden changes that mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Um, and what they're starting to see is that actually the sudden changes play a massive role, whether it's like an earthquake or something like that, that changes an ecosystem that there are, you know, evolution is a gradual process is punctuated by absolutely, you know, um, instrumental moments. Um, and then it's probably what our emotional process is like too. Yeah. You just need an earthquake of a standing ovation every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I well, mean, I mean, I feel like it's momentum. Like yeah. I feel like so much of our brain state comes down to momentum and thinking about harnessing that is super helpful. I love it. Okay. Do you want to get onto the hemoglobin and fitness? Thing? Let's do it. I'm okay, pumped. We have another fun story we'll share next week because uh, I want to get to the science right now. This study just came out last week in the plus one journal and the title is the relationship between hemoglobin and VO2 max, a systematic review in meta-analysis. And to conduct this, so there are 
essentially summarizing a number of different studies and using statistical methods to do so. They looked at 226 observational studies and 158 interventional studies. Yeah. My mind is kind of blown, actually. This shows how important VO2 max and hemoglobin are in exercise physiology. The fact that there's that many studies that could meet the meta-analysis and systematic review criteria yeah. is wild to me. That's a lot of studies. It's so crazy, but it makes sense. Uh, you know, we talk about blood volume all the time. As a quick reminder, hemoglobin just carries oxygen um, in your bloodstream, red blood cells, hematocrit. They all work together to be a proxy for how much oxygen that you might be able to transport to working muscles via this one molecule. It's mm -hmm. not the end-all be-all, but it does tell us a lot about athletes' health and maybe most significantly, the reason we talk about it a lot, it's the type of thing you can manipulate with you know, supplementation and behavior and things like that. It's interesting. It's not the end all and be all, but it does matter a lot. I mean, that's the thing the study points out that yes, exactly. blew yeah. my mind. When I saw it, I was like, oh, we have to bring this to the podcast because like, you know, I, I think sometimes athletes focus so much on the numbers of training theory and not enough on just like, is your body able to adapt to it due to the underlying situation? And, and that's one reason we focus on fueling. And I think if we're going to focus on that stuff, we should also be paying attention here. But I think, but it brings up the point, interesting point though. So I think it matters a ton. Yet at the same time, I feel like we're still learning a lot about it because yeah. we have seen athletes that have like won big, big races with hemoglobins in like the 11s or 12s, yeah. which is quite low. That's like on the very low end of the reference range. And that blows my mind. Yeah. So like, okay, could they be like, the like the biggest world champions out there if they improve their hemoglobin levels or have their bodies adapted and like you know interacted and like counteracted this over time in multiple ways yeah and that's where i think it gets a little complicated is yes, in the yeah. individual data point so yes, today yeah. we're talking about a massive data set Hum i mean 226 observational studies which is just monitoring what happened monitoring people's baseline traits reporting back and then 158 interventional studies which is pull some levers see what changes um whereas on the individual data point level, I don't think it necessarily works like that. It's more like if you are at your individual optimized range, which yes. for that athlete mm -hmm. at 11 might mean that they're 11.8 rather than 11.1 yep. or similar. And then other athletes are just genetically high. Like there's a huge genetic component. It's not about pushing the absolute number to some insane level. It's about your own personal best. Um, and the, the one complicated thing gets into like blood manipulation and doping and things, which we'll get into a after all of this, just to, um, tie it all together. But to summarize the shocking data. So for the observational data, the 226 studies, there was a positive association between, um, VO2 max and hemoglobin levels. Um, and the P value was less than 0 0.0001 for that. Um, and then for the interventional data, there was a positive association as well. And the, same number of zeros on that. So in other words, these statistical relationships are wildly um, strong where hemoglobin, this one blood variable, correlates very, very closely with VO2 max, which also correlates with almost every fitness variable we care about. And I really look like looking at like the magnitude of the effect. So for me, it's like, it's less about the, you can always like manipulate p-values very easily. But if you dive into the like actual effect sizes of the changes, they're quite large. And so to me, this was like the money ball quote of the entire paper. Yeah. Um, because when I saw this, I was like, dude, this is a, a big effect size. So among studies with a direct physiological manipulation of hemoglobin levels, a one gram per deciliter change in hemoglobin concentration corresponded to a 5% change in absolute VO2 max. Wow. So think about that. That's, I mean, that is, so a one gram per deciliter. So if you're thinking about like bumping from like 12 to 13, that's not, that's actually pretty big. So but it makes sense. It's definitely possible. But we it's definitely it. possible. Yeah, we exactly. We see it all the time. We see people go up three. But sometimes. even think about like 5% VO2 max changes. That's like insane. Especially yeah. when they say that like, 10% is the most you can even imagine at the beginning of your training. Once mm -hmm. you just are training, you know, they always say VO2 max is not trainable. Well, clearly it's trainable, but just through different mechanisms than we might have assumed before. Um, 
And, you know, before I get to the the next little thing here, um, very briefly, I do want to point out that um, you talk a lot about manipulation of p-values. Yes, yeah. That sounds like a dirty term. <laughs> yeah. We really need to take a step back and point out, because I know there are listeners out there that were like, is that what you're doing on Thursdays, manipulating p-values? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that comment? I guess for me, it gets back to the idea of no matter how tempting it is, don't do it. If you want to bang your coworker in the closet, it's just not worth it. But we're coworkers. Oh, yeah, but we also, we got a ring on it. Okay, okay, Yes, okay. And we also work in a house where we have our own closet. It becomes okay once you buy the ring pop. And once you buy the closet. Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, okay, so this study is fascinating. And the big thing to just take a step back on here is to understand that these hemoglobin values are something that you can improve in yourself over time. Yes, um, yeah. We, ha- we tar- did a whole podcast on this, but it underscores again just how important it is. And one more study actually to mention is that I'm always shocked by is the sprint interval training study where they mm-hmm. did a six-week sprint interval training intervention and they found that blood volume um, improved by 5.4%, VO2 max improved by 8%, cardiac output improved by 8%. That's really cool, kind of types of things we expect. But then they reduced the blood volume, the 5.4% gain, mm-hmm. back to zero yep. after it with via phlebotomy. So they withdrew their blood on the theory that let's see what happens. And what they found is those VO2 max changes and cardiac output changes also went back to zero. So everyone went back to their baseline that the fitness gains were actually blood gains, not happening in peripheral systems. That's insane. And also makes you realize I should be focusing on this as much as I'm focusing on other elements of training. That's I love that study because it's a ballsy study design. Like that's yeah. an excellent study design. But also too, because I mean I feel like it really captures like some some of the lines of causation as to why this happens. But as we just talked about zone one training, and now you're talking about like sprint interval training, yeah. really boosting the hemoglobin levels. I think it is important to talk about the idea too that like combining them both is yeah. essential because what we've seen often is that like hemoglobin levels get diminished by uh, stress, yeah. by low energy availability, by a lot of these different factors that sometimes if you're doing too much Z4, Z5, even Z3 training, it starts to it starts to interact and, and really impact hemoglobin levels. Yeah. Stress, health, rest, all the most important things here and fueling plenty, um, like including re- and rest days. I think one of the reasons that rest days probably work is that it's a day without foot strike hemolysis yes, or yeah. losing, you know, uh, red blood cells through other, other means that or, happen during exercise. Or it reduces cortisol and, yeah. you know, cortisol can interact to, to reduce hemoglobin. Yeah, exactly. But the main one here is your iron supplementation needs. Like make sure you dial in your iron, please. If you haven't gotten an iron panel done, um, that measures your ferritin and your hemoglobin, please do it soon because the reference ranges on this are all off. So many people have no idea. If you can boost that ferritin number up into the you know upper double digits, like let's say 70 to 80 even, you're going to see gains even though the reference range starts starts at 12. Yes, um, yeah. Ideally and, above 40. 40 yeah. is like the cutoff that I consider to be important. But even that cutoff, I'm like- Oh, it's it's slightly- I mean, why I is want it? athletes to be higher. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, and it's one of those things I'm not comfortable saying publicly, but I will say to podcast listeners- Oh, you just said it publicly. Yeah. This is pretty public. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. No, Megan, we're just in our bedroom. We're just in the closet. (laughs) But like, you know, when I see professional athletes, what I see is usually they're able to push those numbers a little higher. And I was actually reading a study when I was writing the article on this, um, that when you look at professional cyclists, they'll often see ferritin levels in the triple digits as like the baseline. Mm -hmm. And that could be monitoring some other weird things that's going on with supplementation and other things in the pro peloton. But the point being, like, when people are optimizing their physiology that much, they're starting to push these numbers real high. And not that we want that because that becomes risky in its own way. Not everybody should be supplementing with iron, things like that. But most people out there probably should be supplementing with iron. So get a blood test to confirm. 
Uh, Megan's going to insert like a thousand disclaimers oh, to that, that statement. I know, lame, I know. I just lame, like lame. have to, but it is curious what you said about the professional cyclist being so high. And I wonder if you compare it, we should really compare a cyclist to runners. And I'm, yeah. I wonder if the study has been done, but they don't have foot strike homolysis. Which and is it, when red blood cells break down each step. Yes. And I'm curious. I mean, I feel like that probably has a big impact on, on yeah. ferritin levels. Also, you know, when we're looking at professional cycling, we have to be aware of the doping concern yes. that I teased earlier. Um, there was a study in 2013 that found that four weeks of EPO injections increased hemoglobin by 19.7%. Which is bonkers. Yeah. And considering what we know now about like the correlation between hemoglobin and VO2 max, I feel like so often we just assume that we're looking at genetic freaks. Yeah. Like Jonas Vindigo has apparently a wild VO2 max. And yeah. like, yeah, that could be genetic. Like, But also it's, I feel like so often we write off like, like pro athletes is just having these genetic outliers VO2 max, but yeah, EPO contributes a lot to that. Yeah. But it gets back to, and I'm not, I actually love Jonas. So I'm not saying anything about Jonas. Oh no. And I I was going to, you know, couch that here and like, (laughs) you were going to save me. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, because I think it's an important point. Yes. There's two elements of reasoning that matter here. The first is, well, what would that athlete that just ran two hours in the marathon run if they took EPO, you know, and the, the, um, test there, the logic test being like, okay, this shit does wild things to the body. Are we just saying these people are clean knowing that someone out there will cheat and wouldn't they be faster based on the study? But then that's counteracted by the hopeful thing, which is, you know, if athletes are relatively optimized in these zones already, there's not benefit to pushing it higher. Yes, that's so true. You the, just risk like health issues and having sludgy blood that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. and then most likely these athletes have really wildly high values at baseline. So it's tough to tell. I mean, one of the things that um, the Lance Armstrong and Tyler Hamilton, the doping era in professional cycling in the early 2000s talked about is athletes that had naturally low hemoglobin levels had much better outcomes with EPO. Mm-hmm. and doping. So Lance Armstrong, naturally low hemoglobin. What we were testing at the Tour de France back then, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, everybody was doping. He just worked harder. The point that they're missing is that we're testing how does that physiology respond to doping interventions. So, you know, now what, you know, we're rewarding a little bit of like genetic talent. Like, yeah, this person has naturally high hemoglobin um, in the modern era assuming people aren't doping as much. Um, back then we were saying who has the least amount of hemoglobin and still a fuck ton of talent. Well, I'm actually curious about that. Why do you think that works? Is that because their body has compensated in other ways so that when you add the hemoglobin in, it creates this like monster of a physiological machine? Like why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because if you put it into someone that has the, their talent is their oxygen carrying capacity in their blood. It's other things that they've adapted to. Like, you know, they'll die of a heart attack or something. Like they just can't raise their blood values any higher without risk. Whereas those um, athletes that like Lance could raise it by 15%. And so they're talented in everything else except that one thing. Right. Um, And it just points out some of the weirdness there. Um, And like the understandings of how, you know, the fact that almost every doping intervention touches this variable points out, we should be thinking about this variable in clean, healthy ways because it drives performance and it also drives health and energy. So iron um, heat acclimation is the big one that new studies have found that if you are doing one or two, doing some heat exposures, you probably can get red blood cells over time that can really help. Um, and eating enough, like keep dialing that in because um, all of this comes back to health. And if you're able to push your number, your red blood cell numbers just a little higher, you're probably going to train better, but you're also probably going to feel better in life too, because that's 
like what helps you r- walk up the stairs, not just run trails. Maybe dancing more on some random runs. But also, final point on this is I do think be informed. So yeah. for athletes that have low ferritin levels, have had low hemoglobin hematocrit levels, I say test every four months. Yeah. Um, it's really helpful to have that data to inform training, to inform supplementation, and um, like stay on top of it. Yeah, everybody should be getting their blood tests. If there's nothing else in this podcast, like get your blood tested. You can do a full comprehensive panel, something like Inside Tracker, or you can go in most states, I think nowadays, you can just order a la carte from quest like it's the tasting menu at golden corral or something oh, it's like 40 dollars for yeah. an iron panel it's amazing even david roach is getting his blood drawn so yes. are you gonna do it again you did it once you have a fear of needles i was so proud of you yeah are you can do it again i am i need to when because i've been supplementing with iron since yes. that test because yeah. my ferritin was 26 which is firmly in the low range even though my hemoglobin was pretty high so i need to check in to make sure that my iron supplementation is dialed in um when am i gonna do it Next topic. <laughs> <laughs> that was excellent. And this is on endurance news. We're going to go through these rapid fire, but always want to talk about things. First, update on our predictions. So if you remember when we talked about the Olympic trials and the marathon, which are scheduled to be held in Orlando at noon uh, and sometime in February, we said, we think that's going to change, uh, that they're not going to go through with that. Um, update as of last week, I think 80 athletes signed on to a letter um, and there's only like 200 performing in it. And I think they only asked 80 to move it earlier in the day to like 6 or 7 a.m. So we'll see what USATF does. I think they're going to listen to these athletes and move it earlier. Oh, I think they absolutely should. I think they'd be bonkers not to. And I'm curious, actually. So Twin Cities, we talked about the other week about how that was canceled. And I think that was probably the right call. We had a debate back and forth on that. So I'll be curious to see what happens. But I think one interesting point, though, and I don't think we necessarily talked about this with Twin Cities, is that the more intense of an event, the higher the likelihood of heat stress. So I never thought about this, but like counterintuitively, 10-mile races can have even more heat stress than a marathon. Interesting. A marathon will probably have more heat stress than a 100-miler, like when you're thinking about measuring it. And so I think when athletes are going for the Olympic team, like that's ultimate heat stress. Like think about the intensity of that moment. Yeah, wonder about that. So I, I understand the heat stress thing, but what about the downstream impacts of heat stress? Yeah, like the CK. Or dehydration patient. even. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. in a 10 hour, that's going to be much less of an issue. Yeah. So I, I imagine there's some inflection point where if we're charting two curves, one is the heat stress on the body. Like maybe that does peak a little earlier, but then if we're charting heat stress impacts, that's yes. increasing in the background. Actually, that's so well said. So I think if you think about like pure body temperature, I think at the 10 mile distance, yeah. it might be higher than something like Western states. But if you look at like creating kinase, which yeah. is like muscle muscle breakdown and dehydration and rhabdo and like all the serious consequences of it, I bet you it does increase at a race like Western states. Definitely. Okay. Uh, number two there. Uh, this is from a listener. So just a basic observation, hot take question mark. I'm a casual observer of elite runners. I don't religiously follow. Uh, what, I, what I noticed is a huge amount of criticism and doubt towards the female winner and new world record holder at Berlin, and mostly a celebration of the Chicago winner and new world record holder who said he wasn't even sore. <laughs> Sexism? Question mark. Do we believe men more in athletic pursuits and question women? Would love for you guys to dig deep into it. Much love to you both and cheering like crazy for Megan. Uh, I hope not. Yeah. yeah I it's like, an interesting question. It is an interesting question, like, actually. I wonder, and I we wonder, did this like, too. I know, I was going to say, I wonder, like, we did this and I think it was almost, it, yeah. I was, I felt like we didn't want to be skeptical like 18 times in a row. And it just <laughs> so happened that we talked about the world record holder at, um, Berlin, at Berlin first. And so that's kind of how it went. But I, I mean, I do wonder, like, I feel like it's always important to think about like implicit bias in yeah. situations like this, but I feel like for us, we just didn't want to be skeptics over and over again. No, I mean that, but also one of the things with doping, and we talk about this a lot because it is relevant in oh, it's how highly we relevant consume sport, yeah. sports and understand physiology because dopers have 
perverted training theory too. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, all we're talking about with stress and stuff, it's like essentially swap training is the most elite training style possible for non-dopers. It's essentially what we're trying to do with like minimizing stress in the broader context. Um, but one of the things you can look at is career trajectories. Like um, a good example is I, I was reading about a guy that was just busted today um, as we're recording this on Monday who got a 10-year suspension for also tampering with medical records. 10 years? Yeah. I've never heard of a suspension that long. He yeah. was the sixth fastest marathoner, a 202 mm-hmm. guy. Um, and his trajectory before it did not indicate a 202 marathon, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's the type of thing that you see right away and just shows, 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 and then 202. If if if, if any of them are clean. Um, and what you know he was doing this in his 30s when it wasn't shown earlier on and and there's always excuses given for that but that's a red flag it's not a not a smoking gun or anything but it's something to pay attention to um and as we talked about with the women's world record by sefa like that progressed a lot faster than the man's world record which that guy has run three marathons all of them have been incredible um and so he's showing a pattern of performance that being said i think most likely if we could actually see what was happening had like a truth serum it would probably be both are clean or both are dirty rather than you know picking and choosing because like if the top end of endurance sports at the very very top scary top end like people are going so fast is dirty like it then it's probably just dirty for everyone because statistically if anyone did it knowing the percentage gains then like you'd just be selecting for whoever of the top 100 athletes in the world is acting unethically. That's a great point. And I think another red flag to add to that conversation too is racing very rarely. Yeah. Um, because I feel like it, yeah. it kind of complicates the the doping process and things like that. Because and, they have a biological passport. Yes. Interestingly, the biological passport, one of the main ways it catches people is via hemoglobin levels and send some of the red blood cell counts that monitor like new red blood cells versus old red blood cells. But they're looking at the same things we're talking about here. Yeah. And to follow up on a point that you said, I loved how you use the term truth serum. Yeah. Is that like a, a term that's used in society or you just make that up? Yeah, it is. It is? It oh, is. shoot. I, I didn't know that. I was like, you're so creative. In movies and things like that. I, yeah. I've heard truth serum before. I can't take credit for it. Okay. Well, if you had a truth serum on these athletes, would you want to know? Or is it better to be like up to up to belief? So there's this other um, quote that I have. Yes. That's my quote. <laughs> yeah. Which is the truth will set you free. Yep. Um, so that was me. Yep. David Rich. Yep. Everyone that uses that quote, <laughs> attribute that to me, please. Um, and just so, yeah, I think the truth is always the best option. Yes. Yeah. Um, basically for everything except not looking through your partner's cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever hear those stories where I'm like, uh, people look through their partner's cell phone and I'm like, don't do that. They deserve a private life and you're not like, you're only going to find bad things there or just things that confirm that things are okay. Like you're never going to find good things there. Well, you're so funny with my cell phone. I'm like, here, take it, do whatever you want. And you're like, oh, should I scroll through your pictures? No, I'm it's like, your, that's your private life. I mean, it's like a thousand pictures of like Leo and Addie and every once in a while, my wrinkles that look like dimples. <laughs> <laughs> I think truth is a great thing in all contexts. No, I agree. Yes, except yeah. for when it's important to have a private like existence in your life. And especially- you know, for a woman like you, I I want you to feel empowered to not be like controlled by someone that gives a shit about your stuff that I have no business knowing. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Like various moles (laughs) or whatever that you're taking photos of. (laughs) Okay. Number three. Um, This is a great hot take actually from a listener. 
It's not fair for professional sponsored ultra runners to wear prototype shoes or any other shoes not available to the public at races. Yeah, I agree with this. Totally actually. agree. Well, I actually agree with this for for like road marathons too. So interestingly, actually in the World Athletics in 2020, briefly banned prototype yeah, shoes. Yeah, did you follow up on this? Because yes, yeah, but then they reversed it. and They did? Yeah, they okay. received pressure from like shoe, there's like some fancy term for like shoe agencies or yeah. whatever, and they pushed back against it. But it makes no sense to me. So what was it? I guess it was like the, the um marathon olympic trials with yeah. um shalane oh back in 2016 but i was gonna say i was i wasn't sure if it was 2016 or 2018 when kara missed kara goucher missed out on the olympic yes. trials because she didn't have shoes most likely and all the nike athletes had these like sweet super shoes and like what we now know they were four yeah. percent it totally changed the nature of the race so i agree yeah we should totally go back to that they have to be publicly available process because yes. it's fucked i mean Athletes should be on more of a level playing field with gear in general. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason that, I don't know, they don't allow baseball bats to be corked. Yeah. You know? That's actually a great analogy. Or whatever. In in, like high school and college now, the aluminum bats have um, regulations on how responsive they can be. And it makes sense because otherwise you'd have like some people with this huge technological advantage and others without it. And can I call you out for a second? Okay, what? Why do you know this? And it's because... So <laughs> this is my favorite. Every night now, David has just been watching. There's like a whole YouTube channel. Called the Baseball Bat Bros. And they just basically hit baseballs like really hard for hours on end. And you could just sit there in bed like watching this forever. They jack massive dongers over and over and over. And David's just watching this and watching this and watching what? this. And it's like your favorite thing. But you know what? It's kind of been contagious. It's grown on you, right? I kind of like watching it. It's almost like watching a video game and they're just hitting like these massive yeah. home runs. And the sound it makes when the baseball clinks off the metal bat is great. Yeah. Some people meditate. I watch people just like jack things into the upper deck. <laughs> yeah. You should watch this. Go, click Baseball Brat Bros on YouTube and just watch one of these. They like review bats, hit long home runs and stuff. You don't need to know about that. You don't even need to have sound on. You just get to watch people launch balls into the stratosphere. It is so emotionally satisfying for me on a cellular level. It is my self-care. Well, the other thing that you used to do, and this is kind of like supplanted it, is you used to just watch crits. Like, so bike, bike crits, bike racing, bike, yeah. racing, bike crits, when they would just ride laps around like a two mile radius and you would just watch it and watch it and watch it. And now I'm kind of relieved actually that baseball has replaced biking crits. Yeah, yeah. I think that is really good. <laughs> um, you know, and as it relates to these shoes, like I think it's a problem in trails in particular. I mean, um, because I think shoes take longer to get to the market. Like, yes. Yeah. Um, so at Chicago, both of the winners were wearing the Alpha Fly 3, the one that's going to be released in January. What a marketing debut. Yeah, but I mean, all these shoes are going to be like that. Yeah, it seems. true. It yeah. seems like that's the new normal. And that's a problem, but like every runner probably has access to that that's competing at that level. Um, in trails, the Nike Ultrafly has been on athletes' feet for years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember seeing it, I believe, at 2021 Western States. And it just came out this year, maybe even earlier. And, um, you know, that's a problem. Or Especially, Jim Wamsley. It's always like, I look at his shoes yeah, and I'm protos. like, please give me those. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would do it too if I had access to these protos as the athlete. I think it's... We have to regulate the system. Yes, not the athletes, yeah. You know, like we're not waiting three years for shoes to come to a market. And then some people are just constantly ahead of the curve because they run for the better shoe companies with better testing, with, you know, better ability to invest and create special protos. I don't think athletes should ever be running in prototypes. I think we should only allow mass market shoes be on feats. I totally agree. Do you know where biking, like cycling has fallen on this? So it used to be that I think in cycling, like the components had to be available on the market. But I heard, so Kashi Nuyadama, she's... We've 
been like longtime fangirls of her over here. She just won gravel world championships, but she was on a prototype Canyon bike. Oh. And I thought that was like banned in cycling. I don't know if gravel cycling is different. I think they ban like the level of performance, like essentially the weights of the bikes and check things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the difference in running, I think, is that the percent changes that these shoes are bringing in are much bigger than it'd be like if biking said, we're not going to wait. You can have an 11 pound bike. Yes. If they did that. That would be a huge problem, yeah. right? Because granted, there are basic shoe regulations. Like in the marathon, there's like stack height regulations and things like that. Interestingly, it wasn't an Ironman a couple of years ago. Yeah. And was it Gustav Iden that had like, he was basically running on like platform 50 shoes? 50 millimeter shoes. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't affect the outcomes. Like, I think right now we found that the optimal shoe technology is starting to be converged on because every company is starting to develop shoes that look kind of similar. Mm-hmm. And that just leads me to be worried that we're going to get to the point of, shoes for the few and the 99% is going to be stuck with the previous generation. Mm -hmm. So the arms race becomes a problem when it's not available to all for obvious reasons. So let's open it up to everybody. I like that. Okay. Next story. Uh, NAZ Elite hired a new coach, Jack Milani. Um, But the reason we want to highlight this is uh, some interesting things about him. The main thing I wanted to say, uh, he has a 251 marathon PR, obviously very fast, but not professional athlete level. Interesting to see a coach being hired at this level that, um, you know, wasn't a professional athlete. And his quote is this, I used to hide that about my past because I think so often in this sport, your currency is how fast you've run, he said. And after a while, I realized that for me, my background allows me to be a more independent thinker and pull from a variety of experiences. I love that quote. And I feel like it parallels a lot of what we've seen in coaching is that like, I feel like sometimes the very best coaches were not always the very best athletes. And I don't know, I feel like sometimes when athletes are the very best, it's almost hard for them to like break down what it takes. Or I mean, I don't even know, like, why do you think that is? That's that's like part of my theory. The rationale I've always heard is that they, it it comes a little bit more easily for them. Yeah. It's natural. They they don't even think about it. They just do. Um, so like Pat Riley, um, who led the Los Angeles Lakers to five world championships in the 1980s, later on coached the Miami heat to another world championship. Um, you know, one of the best coaches ever, his story is essentially, he was a great high school athlete. So Mm -hmm. like you know, superstar, great at Kentucky, and then goes to the NBA and is just okay and has to work his ass off every single day to not get cut. And that seems to be the sweet spot that leads to a lot of great coaches is people that had to work their ass off through a lot of adversity, Mm -hmm. not to get metaphorically cut because they're trying to, they understand the process of optimizing at a really visceral level in a way that like the true, you know, superstars that are at the very top might not. So maybe it's less of an issue in running because I think every runner kind of understands the struggle. I was just going to say too, or like, I feel like this is more, I think in ball sports, because in ball sports, it's like the brain processes that allow you to complete the like mechanics behind the sport matter so much more. Whereas running, you're just like turning, you're you're like taking forward momentum and doing that on like relentless forward progress. And so I think it matters a little bit less in running, uh, but I do think it still applies. That being said, though, I my theory is that like a coach has to understand the nitty gritty of what it takes yeah. to train and compete in that sport. Yeah, no, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I don't think necessarily has to. There's amazing examples of like football coaches that never played football themselves. Yeah, but I think especially for running, like I think a coach has to understand what you're asking athletes to do. Well, th- we shouldn't let the exceptions prevent us from saying that. Because oh, think, yes. oh, there's so many exceptions. Yeah, but I agree with you. When you're coaching someone in running, and you're asking them to do the things you're asking them to do, if you don't understand how it feels like in a visceral, like I'm going to die type of way or the motivation things we talked about earlier, any of that, like it's not a numbers game. Yeah. It it has to be a brain game. And so it doesn't mean you have to do it now. 
but having some experience with it, no matter where that led, is important. So I think it's relevant that Jack Milani is a 251 marathoner, probably worked his ass off for that. That gives you all the tools you need, you know? Or if you work your ass off for a six-hour marathon, that gives you all the tools you need to be a great coach. But I do think it's important that you've worked your ass off. And I like how the, so NAZ Elite did this search primarily driven by athlete feedback, which I think is a model that we need more in coaching systems. Like whether that's at the college level, probably a little harder at the high school level, but like at the college level or like the elite level, I feel like athletes should be involved in that coaching decision. Yeah, I love that. Okay, uh, do you want to get on to the Garmin training status? Let's go on to, we need to get to the Reds consensus statement because we've been oh, teasing that. I want to talk about the Garmin training status. Can we do it really quick or not? You want to do both and hot takes? I do. Okay. Okay. All right. This you is, know what? I, I affirm you. The Garmin <laughs> training status one will be very quick. Um, this is a question from Patreon. As always, patreon.com slash swap SWAP. Question about the Garmin Connect app, quote, training status. Should I give any fucks about whether or not it says my training is, quote, productive, maintaining, etc.? As usual, I'm following your online training plans, this time for a 50K. But I've noticed after about four weeks of tracking, uh, my Garmin starts to tell me I'm doing everything wrong. This happens every training block. My guess is it's because its anaerobic fitness is low. Does that really matter for the 50K plus distance? And then they go into a lot of self-doubt on um, what they're doing. And they also go into to describe to you that they're doing a lot of vert in their training, yeah. which I think is a relevant um, relevant part to this question. Yeah. And so all watches are giving some of this information nowadays. Should you pay attention to it? I think that understanding it in context can be helpful as long as you understand that it's not the word that it's telling you. It's kind of what it's seeing, like why it's doing that. Yes. The like general the inputs. And I think it's a lot more general trends than yeah. like day-to-day data points. Yeah. And so Garmin, for example, uses a few different metrics. It uses your heart rate, which if your heart rate's not accurate on your wrist-based watch, obviously that's not going to be helpful. If it is accurate, maybe it is a little helpful. Then uh, your paces, so how that heart rate-pace ratio interacts, your running economy, things like that. Um, and then your overall load in different zones. And it spits out this number. Essentially, it's telling you, is your heart rate too high for the pace you're going? Um, and Or is it right just right? Or are you peaking and things like that? And I think that that can be useful. If your heart rate is right and you're a road marathoner, most likely the information it's giving you is probably going to be pretty good and pretty reliable to, you know, understand general trends in your training. And I like that you inserted road marathoner yes. in there very specifically because it's impossible to know what the Garmin algorithm is. They don't release these things, but we've had enough data that we can kind of start to like estimate and imply. And it seems like it's very poor at tracking vert. It doesn't give it, a shit. It, 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 it might not even consider vert in this equation, it seems like. And so if you're doing a lot of training runs with vert, the, the prediction is going to be a lot less accurate. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, if I go out and run an 11 minute paced run, that's the equivalent effort of a six minute paced run. It's going to tell me that I'm a piece of shit and I'm slow. <laughs> yes. You yeah. know, and the point is like, so trail runners, you can totally ignore this. Um, if you're ever running trails, I think it is kind of interesting for me when I go run flats, it'll update my numbers pretty quickly. And those changes relative to my own bat pass kind of does give me some guidance. Like this past Friday, I went and did a loop run of our neighborhood. We have a 1.2 mile neighborhood loop. And I just ran around in loops, looking at my heart rate, just out there on a joy ride, keeping it um, aerobic. Um, and it was very cool because after I finished the run, my watch had accurate heart rate and it updated my numbers to say I'm at like basically the peak fitness it's ever told me. So it's seeing these long-term trajectories and giving good numbers. Then I went out on Saturday, had a much better, harder run where I set a record up the backside of Green Mountain, and it told me I was a piece of shit that was getting slower because it had vert on that run. When you were going around the neighborhood and doing these loops, I was sitting there working at my desk and I just saw you fly by and get these 37 second snippets. It was great. Did you do that for the for the watch? Uh, well, I mean, partially, yeah, but partially because I it's a place where I can control. Yes, yeah. Um, and like 
I understand those numbers too. And it makes me, it feels good. Yeah. You know, like I like that feeling of just aerobic cruising. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've turned them off. So in yeah. pregnancy, actually, you had the option to turn off these things. And I was like, oh, sure, I'll turn this off. But then I never turn it back on. And I actually kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that whenever I look at your watch, whenever I go back in and just scroll through your watch when you're not looking. Yeah. You can have access to my watch, but I'm on my phone. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do make you be like, Megan, you got to show me that heart rate file. No secrets. There better not be any 140s, 150s in there. Yeah. Um, so, and then finally, the heart rate zones that your watch is telling you are not accurate for most watches. Yes. Look at our how to set heart rate zones article to know accurate ones. The race predictor algorithm, at least for Garmin, is a load of shit. Yes. I have run faster 10Ks. I've run fast 10Ks in the context of like a workout. And training on like, and like then, gnarly train. Yes. And then it has told me after it that my 10K predicted time is a minute slower. So I'm like, <laughs> what are you looking at here? So yeah, you can just ignore those. Um, and then finally, the thing I'm interested to see is Coros released a new armband for heart rate. Which is awesome. Honestly, I'm just going to say this. Coros wrist-based data has not been great. For yeah, heart. we've yeah. always been scared to say that. We've been. If you ever heard us say, there are some companies where you shouldn't trust their wrist-based data, we're talking about Coros. Yes, yeah. Um, but and, the, and I'm excited about that. Sunto, too. Yeah, I'm excited about the armband, though. The armband seems great. Yes. So if you have a Coros out there, consider their armband. It seems like it is really good. Okay, do you want to do the IIOC Red S, or will we not have enough time for it today? What do you, you're saying, it seems you're smiling at me as you say this. Are you trying to lead me in one direction? I think we should just do hot takes. Okay, we can do it. Because like, IOC Red S is cool, but like, you know, it's a bigger discussion, I think. I I was going to say, it it really is like a 20 minute discussion. We'll do it at the front end next week. Okay, sweet. Not talk about our Chick-fil-A order. (laughs) Yeah, well, the two are honestly in tandem. I know, but the problem, Megan, is if we start talking about Chick-fil-A, we just lose track of time. We just keep talking about Chick-fil-A. It's like you eat one nugget and then you just eat 12. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, we we had never done Chick-fil-A until relatively recently, and it has been a pretty wondrous experience. Like, in, in the past, I'd always thought that I, you know, I had heard about some issues with their social stance on social issues. Yes, yeah. And so I was like, oh, well, this should be a place where like, I don't need to go to Chick-fil-A. I shouldn't go to Chick-fil-A, even as I'm unsure. Were you saying you didn't want conservative chicken? It, well, no, I don't mind conservative, but yes, <laughs> it is very conservative chicken, but I was more worried about women's right to choose and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. um, you wanted women's right to choose chicken. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yes. Well, they both involve embryos yes. if we're talking about that. Um, but then I heard from one of my favorite podcasters, Scott Galloway, where he's talking about Chick-fil-A making all these leaps in you know diversity and inclusion initiatives and things like that. And then Chick-fil-A back in May almost got canceled by that whole thing that was also trying to cancel Bud Light and stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, look, if people that I don't respect are trying to cancel Chick-fil-A, maybe actually now <laughs> I can eat that conservative chicken. It all comes full circle. No, it's actually, here's my hot take though. Yeah. Is I think the milkshakes are even better than the chicken. Okay. Every time we go there, I order a vanilla milkshake and it's like so good. Yeah. I, just, it's, I think it's the best fast food milkshake out there. I just housed 12 nuggets, four tenders and some waffle fries. And I posted that photo on my Strava yesterday. And, and one of our listeners, I assume, I think it's Thomas, he just commented, conservative fitness. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, ah, that's a good type of fitness right there. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get on to hot takes. Um, we also have another topic in there about an article that you just published. Um, so we'll talk about that next week too. Actually, it's related to Reds. Yeah. So we'll roll Chick-fil-A. We'll, we'll do another update on Chick-fil-A, then into the consensus statement, and then into the article. I'm so proud of you. It's oh. so cool to see your research out there in the world and how hard you've worked on this for so many years. Like, you're a superstar. Oh, thank you. Well, that's how research works is that you do this research like three years ago and it comes out now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So on to hot takes. Um, I'm going to just start with the first one, which is a little bit interesting. You only really need three squares of toilet paper. Oh, what do you, what's, I'm actually, I'm going to 
you go first. This person has GI privilege. <laughs> yeah. This is a problem. This would be a disaster in our household if you did that. No, I actually, it would I, be okay. I do have GI privilege and I could do this. I don't think you could do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, to, we are getting um, a toilet installed tomorrow, actually. It's called a power flush toilet. The, the plumber said we could flush a futon down it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, this topic is relevant to our earlier discussion on hemoglobin. If you have digestive issues or GI issues, that can be a place that affects nutrient absorption that impacts your hemoglobin. Or in the worst case scenarios, if you have any bleeding in GI, that can be extremely negative for hemoglobin. And and the very low levels we see often come from GI bleeds of different types, not even amounting to full ulcers, but people are actively losing some blood in this area. So actually, I'm going to even send us back one direction too. So low energy availability can often cause GI issues, which impact absorption, which then impact hemoglobin. So it's like one of those things where you see the trajectory of low energy availability going right down the arrows. Do you remember that movie Inception? Yeah. Brum. Brum. Okay, but answer the question. Three squares or not? No, 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 no. Okay. But just just because like, don't, it gets back to the culture of withholding from yourself. Yeah. Don't withhold from yourself. I promise you're not going to solve climate change by sticking to three squares or under. (laughs) Um, Enjoy your life, man. Enjoy it. Okay, next up. Uh, Trail running and sex with your wife of 20 years is so much better post 55. No need to cherish youth as life just keeps getting better. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Man, what are we going to be doing at 55? Yeah, I, I don't know. How old will Leo be when we're 55? He'll be in college-ish age? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Oh, he'll definitely, he'll be long past college. I mean, well, not long past, but yeah, yeah. when you're 55, (laughs) (laughs) I'm the old one here, but this one's really hopeful. I like this one. Very cool. Um, I love this. This is so cool. Yeah. Good reminder on aging that you can, you know, as things evolve in your own personal life, make sure you're not comparing to past versions of yourself. Because like when this listener is saying things get better, what they're probably saying is they are different and I appreciate those differences. Yeah, I love that. Also, this makes me think of Leo too because I've had this strange nostalgia as a mom that he's going to be one coming up your head. But honestly, like every phase that we've gone through him only gets better. And I imagine that's going to continue until he's like 18. Then he'd be very sad when he goes (laughs) off to college. But it is kind of cool to think about like time and wealth and wisdom and wrinkles and how that all comes together. Dude, I am so wrinkly, Megan. And by wealth, I meant like... I don't know why I said wealth, just wealth of love. Wealth of love? Yes. Yeah. I just like <laughs> threw it in there. It was like a statement. And I was like, shoot, that actually doesn't really matter that much. We invested in Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so the wealth does actually, no, Chick-fil-A is not a publicly traded company, I think. Really? I think they're a private company. Wow. So can't invest in them. Unfortunately, making our wealth <laughs> so much less. Damn it. Chick-fil-A. We want to be in your IPO. Uh, okay. Number three. People who label their tempo slash threshold slash race efforts as recovery or easy on Strava should be banned from the platform. Personal take, since I know y'all want to know, it runs the spectrum from deception and manipulation to maybe just poor self-awareness and makes my eyes roll each time that's apparently happening. But of course, banning them is absurd. I like this. Well, first, you don't need to downplay your hot take. The whole point of a hot take is say, ban them. Yeah, say, yeah. <laughs> Banish them to the depths of hell. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, one, a lot of people don't know. You know, that's yes, one of the things yeah. we're trying to bring to the masses is yeah. an understanding of your actual effort levels. Well, I used to do this. I used to be the shithead. I would go out and run like six. 20 pace and be like, yeah. today's my easy day. And people were probably like, girl, this is not good. Uh, but I've learned a lot. I've learned my ways. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes people that do this, I think just don't understand. Yeah. I think Strava should have a heart rate validation system yeah. where if you ever use any of those hot words 
it ha- should it be within that general framework. The problem is then that would require Strava to also know what those words mean. <laughs> and I'm a little bit uncertain sometimes if that's the case. I feel like they can do it, throw in some chat GPT-4 in there and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. GPT-4 is still really bad with training things. Though. I was tagged in something on Twitter that um, one of our athletes, David Tran, he's an incredible uh, startup founder. Um he does flow, so everyone should follow it. Um, but he fed the training into ChatGPT and asked them to create a training plan based on kind of the past things he's done. Yeah. And the only thing that was remotely correct was it had him do a Monday rest day. Like, it, it still seems to struggle a little bit with this information. I don't know why. It didn't uh, even give five by three minute hills. I or, feel like we could be predictable at this point. It's weird. I mean, yeah. you know, th- this system is just so incredible right? GPT-4. Um, we use it for everything now, like, yeah. um, recipes. If you have just, if you have ingredients in your fridge, just say, ask GPT-4 what to make with it. It's amazing what it brings back. Uh, we have 24 Chick-fil-A nuggets <laughs> in our fridge. What are you going to make with it? <laughs> <laughs> They're already gone. You have nothing to worry about there. Um, but for some reason it's really weird and not good at all with training principles yet. Well, maybe you need to train it. Yeah. But I don't know why it's not trained already. Like it yeah. should be, maybe it's just gathering the wrong information. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you spent four hours training it, it'd probably be pretty good. What we should do, I mean, I'd be really curious. So like over time I've written what a thousand, maybe 500 Toronto articles. And I think if we compiled all of those articles, we could get a really good summary of training theory. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, yeah. Maybe we should just as like a, a thought exercise. Just release it on our Patreon. Maybe we should compile that into a book or something actually. A bu- we are, if we are writing a book, we are writing every no, no, single but, word ourselves. I mean, no, but I've, I have written the words, Megan. <laughs> yeah, we have done. I understand I know. that this Those are all your words. This listener says we change, but what I'm saying is just release it as like an ebook or something where people could get all this stuff compiled. Okay. I feel uncomfortable. With, I feel uncomfortable that we'll release it on Patreon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, not for free for $5 a month. <laughs> That's what we need. Um, but that would be really interesting. Yeah. So interesting. But I wonder if we fed that into GPT-4, like what it would then be able to understand about training theory. Well, I'm really curious to see its jokes yeah. and its hot takes. It would also make up a lot of citations. <laughs> yeah. um, number four, human females don't have pointed toes. Many shoe brands need to figure this out and change their molds. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of this uh, general concern, but a lot of people seconded this uh, hot take on Patreon. I actually wasn't aware of this either. Yeah. Yeah. We, so, should, we should gain more knowledge on this. Yeah, I think, okay, here's my unfortunate confession. This isn't a hot take. In fact, we should do a confessions uh, in addition to hot takes. Oh, that'd be so fun. Alternate weeks. Yes. Where people can confess. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say we confess. Yeah. Well, I mean, we confess every week. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) My whole episode has been a confession. My confession now is I always used to make fun of the people that commented on everything like widen your toe box. Megan, I've become one of those hobbit toad motherfuckers. (laughs) I need my wide toe box. I don't know what happened. It makes me very, very sad. Are you allowed to say Hobbit Toad motherfuckers? Um, that I'm, scares I'm thinking, me. I'm processing. That actually this. really scares I'm processing. me. Hobbit is not an actual uh, protected class or anything. Okay, like, sweet. I, as you it, said it that, refer to actual humans. My brain alarm started going off. It's fantasy. Yes. Um, my, and my brain alarms went off higher for that than wide toed shoes okay, or wide, okay, okay. wide shoe, wide toe boxes. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really trying to process this. I don't think I have anything to worry about. Okay. Sweet. No cancellation comes. The Hobbit lobby is not coming for me. <laughs> okay. I don't think, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, interesting. And you know, every, everyone does have diff- very different feet. Um, be aware of this shoe companies. If you're out there listening, uh, pay attention. And number five, we'll have this be the last one. Um, Strava, we'll do this one because skipping down, should have an explicit rest day activity type to make it easy to track rest days and post and brag about them. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, and it would probably be very easy for Strava. Yeah. Everyone could just post their pictures of Chick-fil-A milkshakes. But could you imagine though, how people just 
do the tag of morning run, which everyone knows I'm really against. You oh, need to have some content. It would just be rest day. It would just be rest day with morning nothing. rest day. Morning. Actually, it oh. has to be all day rest day for it to count. Oh my God, Megan. I would, I would like get an aneurysm <laughs> from that. That would be horrible. Um, so what they should do is require that you post a photo. I like that. With yeah. your rest day. Great. Yes. Perfect. It can be anything. It, primarily Chick-fil-A. Primarily, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, oh, okay. Let's get on Listener Corner. But before we do, the most magical shit, when we were talking about hemoglobin earlier, one of the things that is like not scientific directly, but is tied, I think, to some of these topics, is how this interacts with micronutrients generally. Mm-hmm. And your body's ability to you know make red blood cells is not just about iron. It's not just about vitamin B um, and, and things like your protein. It's also about the little things that are coming into your body. And that's where Athletic Greens comes in. So drink ag one com slash swap SWAP. Um, last week, we got to talk to their science team, and I meant to talk about this earlier because it was one of the coolest conversations. It was such a fun conversation. It was actually a touch of a shit show, though, and a confession because yeah. we didn't have childcare. So we brought Leo to this meeting, and he was just going bananas, and it was slightly embarrassing. But I think they actually bought it. Like they they like understood. They bought it. They under, they like bought into our weirdness. Okay. Yes, they understood now, us. They understood us. But the, yes. the part that really excited me about it is in talking to them i came with 10 different bullet points i want to talk about you came with a few as well um while you were wrangling leo and every single one they had thought through already every single suggestion i had of potential additives that they could put in there um like l-citrulline let's say based on some great research we've seen on that they went through the whole reason that either they have it or they don't and they went down the list with each each of their products and the levels that they're at they were so thorough and they were spitting studies like it was their job and it is their job and they're crushing it yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and, and, and it got me to the point that I'm like, okay, I feel even better about this recommendation now because the anecdotes we have seen are clearly backed by a fuck ton of thought by some really, really smart people that have put a huge amount of time and effort into this and spared no expense in that process. Like this is where Athletic Greens invests the money that you give them is to give you the best product possible. So drinkag1.com slash swap probably help things like hemoglobin, definitely help things like recovery. I feel like we might be the first podcast that's saying drink AG1 for hemoglobin. Uh, I mean, as like a, I mean, and that's not, that's not a true statement. It's a hypothetical statement. Connection to stress. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and I actually, I'm affirming that as I say that. The stress management elements of it alone will impact things like hemoglobin. So that's probably the primary driver, but who knows? I mean, um, it was very, very exciting to talk to them. It was so fun. Awesome. Okay. Let's go to the listener corner. This one is so cool. So last week on the podcast, this is an update. We talked about George Hirsch who had left a review on Apple Podcasts that was very complimentary. It was awesome. And I Googled George Hirsch because I was like, oh, I remember that name. I know that name from somewhere. And he is an absolutely famous figure in the running world um, who is now 89 years old, I believe, um, who has done so much from being instrumental in the New York Roadrunners to being um, huge in political causes and, and things like that. Oh, he's a legend. He's an le- absolute legend. But um, before we like took that, I was like, there's probably 45 George Hirsch's out there. Yeah. And what if, so we were I like, is it. this the George Hirsch? But you know what it is? It is it's the, the legend Hirsch. himself. Yeah. And so he sent us this message. Thanks for the shout out on your latest podcast. And this is an 89 year old messaging us this. What a cool guy. He's my hero. Um, oh, he's so cool. I just wanted to let you know that you are a great listen and the coolest running podcast that I've heard. Megan, so sorry about the heart issues. And I'm hoping that it's only a matter of weeks until you're back in training. Sounded pretty sca- scary. Then here's the part you need to pay attention to. Andy Burfoot, who's a famous journalist and writer in the running world, absolutely love his work. And I have recently started our own podcast, which is pretty staid compared to yours. We're still figuring out that are having a good time with it. Um, and we, we want you to do 
is to subscribe to their click follow on their podcast. Let's get them a bump because these are two legends of the sport. They're so smart and they're really good. I listened to the Dina episode. Dina Castor was one of their first interviews. It was great. It's called Running State of the Sport. So right, Running State of the Sport into wherever you get podcasts. They are awesome, and you're going to learn a lot. It's so cool that we can learn from legends. Yeah. And the George Hirsch himself. It was him. Yeah. Actually, one of my athletes, after listening to the podcast, sent me the Michael Jordan commercial, where there was a guy named Michael Jordan using, like, a visa and going around everywhere, and they were like, <laughs> he's like, what's your name? Michael Jordan. Yeah. So, like, goes to check in a restaurant, and I'm sure, and it was the George Hirsch. It was the one and only. Um, and I, I think he's still running um, seven miles a day, or, se- or seven minutes a day, I think, because he's coming back from an injury. So, George Hirsch out there, absolutely rocking it. Follow their stuff. Also, give our stuff five stars if you can. Uh, go click five stars on Summer Work All Play podcast. Uh, click follow. That is huge. In the upper right of most podcast listeners, there's a follow button. Click that, um, which just helps us out and gets it out to more people. Actually, do George first and then come back to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. He's more important. Of course. He's a legend. Of course. George Hirsch is the milkshake at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> yeah. I'm like the waffle fries. We're still good. You know, the waffle fries at Chick-fil-A are good. They are not life-changing, quite like the milkshake and the chicken. They're kind of like an appetizer that you swirl around in there every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can even dip it into the milkshake if we ever talk to him on the podcast. Or dip it into the milkshake and then the Chick-fil-A sauce. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, we started this episode with fluids and we're ending it with fluids. All the fluids. We love you guys. I love you even more than Chick-fil-A sauce, Megan. Oh, thank you. I love you too. And I love everyone listening too. We love you. Huzzah!